0: If you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Psalm 117. Psalm 117. We've already heard these words. Uh, They were our call to worship tonight, but before we read them once again together, let's ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, we come to you as your people this night, ready to praise and adore you indeed. We've already sung, hallelujah, praise Jehovah. We have magnified your steadfast love towards us as the redeemed who have said so. We've called out to you, O King, and adored you and asked you to lead us. And so, King, lead us tonight. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us so that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So perhaps you know this, but one of the, the standard practices of the radio industry, especially in the 1970s and the 1980s, but it, it continues on to today, is to do radio edits of songs that are, are just a bit too long for the airwaves to make them ready for radio. You know, the, the thought behind cutting songs down is that is that if a song is too long, well, then most listeners won't stick with the song all the way to the end, and, and so consequently won't stick with the station to listen to the advertising that's actually paying for it all. And so, so if you cut the song down, well, perhaps then you might be able to listen to it to the end. Two, from the station's perspective, if you have several short songs, well, you can play more. And that variety was a good thing. It would cause someone to stay with the radio station. And then they'd listen to the advertising and so forth. And so the standard um, in the, the world of radio editing was to cut a song down to somewhere between three and, and three and a half minutes. Uh, in response to his hit "Piano Man" being cut down to three minutes and five seconds, uh, Billy Joel actually memorialized this whole phenomena in 1974 song "The Entertainer." You might remember it when he sang, "You've heard my latest record. It's been on the radio. It took me years to write it. They were the best years of my life. It was a beautiful song, but it ran too long. If you're going to have to hit, you're going to have to make it fit." So they cut it down to 3:05. Now. I mention all of this, this about shortening songs and short songs, because what we have here tonight in Psalm 117 is a short song. In fact, it's the shortest song in the entire songbook of the Bible. There are some scholars who think that Psalm 117 was actually a radio edit, something that was actually originally part of Psalm 116 or Psalm 118, the Psalm before it and the Psalm after it, and just got cut off and created in his own psalm. But, but increasingly the consensus is, is that what we have here in Psalm 117 is actually a unique song. One that took its, its rightful and unique place as part of this section that we've been calling the Egyptian Hillel, the, the book of praise about the time of God's people in Egypt. This, this celebrating set of songs that remembered when God delivered his people out of the house of slavery, out of the house of bondage. And if this is a unique song with a role to play in this section of the Bible, then we have to ask the question, why did God the Holy Spirit do this? Why did he have the psalmist write this psalm? And why did God the Holy Spirit decide to include this psalm, this short song in our Bibles? What role does this song play in? And how might this this song shape our view of God And of his world. Well, what I hope we will see tonight is that although this is the shortest of all the Bible songs, theologically it's one of the grandest. As one writer put it, this shortest psalm proves, in fact, to be one of the most potent and one of the most seminal. Like our favorite short songs that we might hear on the radio or For those of us who use Spotify or some other thing, and and we like those three to four minute songs that show up on our list, this short song, it has the power to fill our hearts and to shape our worldview and even to give us hope. But in order for that to happen, we have to see first who is addressed in this song. So if you have your Bibles open still, look at verse one again, praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. So who's addressed? Well, the nations. The peoples are addressed here. This is the Gentile world outside of Israel. They are called upon, they are invited to praise Yahweh, to extol him, to honor him. Now, this is actually relatively unusual in the Psalter. I mean, certainly elsewhere, the nations are invited to praise the Lord. As in Psalm 47, verse 1, clap your hands, all you nations, shout to God with cries of joy. But more times than not, Israel is the one that's commissioned to glorify God, to praise and extol him as a witness to the nations. Like in Psalm 96, verse 1, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among the peoples. Here, in the shortest of songs, The psalmist calls upon the nations, the peoples, the world of nations, and all their ethnic particularity to praise the Lord, to extol him. But why? If who is addressed are the nations, the peoples, the world of nations, all of their ethnic particularity, why were the nations invited, commanded to praise the Lord? Well, that's what verse 2 tells us. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. So, the first question we had to answer was, who who was to praise? But the second question here is, who's the us? Great is his steadfast love toward us. Who's the us here? Well, certainly the first and perhaps the most important referent is, is Israel. The nations were to praise the Lord because of the way that God had acted toward Israel. Well, how did God act toward Israel? Well, the psalmist tells us with steadfast love. That's, that's our important little Hebrew word that we have mentioned over and again, that Hebrew word hased. It, it can be translated as steadfast love or, or covenant loyalty or, or commitment. And in fact, God's steadfast love toward Israel has been great or strong. It's, it's been unbreaking and true. His faithfulness to Israel has endured throughout time over and again, and will do so all the way to the end. And the nations are to see God's steadfast love in demonstrating his powerful commitment and to praise him for it, to extol him, to honor him, as being both good and great for the way that he has hung in with Israel. So who's addressed? The nations, the nations of people in all of their ethnic particularity. Why are they addressed? They are to to praise the Lord because of the way that God has, has hung in with Israel out of steadfast love and faithfulness. But when did God do this? When did God demonstrate his steadfast love toward Israel? When did God demonstrate his his unbreakable commitment, his faithfulness, his covenant loyalty? Was there a specific moment that the nations could point to, that Israel could point to, in which God demonstrated such a powerful, unbreakable commitment to his people? And of course, the right answer is the Exodus. Uh, We have to remember again, this song, like all the songs from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, is is part of this Egyptian Hillel. These are songs that would have been sung every Passover. And so we have to think about how the Passover and the Exodus events around it demonstrates God's steadfast love in such a way that the nations would rejoice in Yahweh. They would praise the Lord. One of the things that's striking, when you read through Exodus, is, is how often God tells Pharaoh that all of this was happening so that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would know that Yahweh is the Lord. In fact, four different times he says that. Chapter 7, verse 5, chapter 7, verse 17, chapter 8, verse 22, chapter 14, verse 4. Over and again, God tells Pharaoh, I'm doing this so that you might know that I'm the Lord. And that's not a knowing, that's an intellectual kind of knowing. That they might somehow apprehend intellectually in a kind of propositional statement. Oh yes, we propositionally know that Yahweh is the Lord. No, this is an experiential kind of knowing. That you will know and feel and sense the fact that I, Yahweh, am the Lord of all the earth. And in knowing... Bow the knee to me. In the same way that Paul, quoting Isaiah, will say in Philippians 2, that that the nations will know and glorify and confess Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the kind of idea in Exodus. The most obvious example of this is Exodus chapter 7, beginning in verse 3. There God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, And with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And here it is. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. When God proved his steadfast love and covenant loyalty to Israel by keeping the promises that he had sworn with an uplifted hand to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as he says in chapter 6, verse 8, the nations... The Egyptians saw it. They knew when the lambs were slaughtered and when the blood was put on the door frames of the Israelites and the angel of death passed over the Israelites, the nations, the Egyptians saw and knew God's steadfast love and covenant loyalty to his people. When the angel of death executed God's judgment upon Egypt, killing the firstborn in every household, both humans and animals, both poor and rich, both the household of the nameless and the household of the famous, they saw God's steadfast love and they knew God's covenant loyalty to his people. And when the Egyptians gave gold and silver and clothing and tapestries and food and camels to the Israelites so that, so that the Egyptians would be plundered and so that God would lead Israel out with everything needful, the Egyptians saw God's steadfast love and covenant loyalty to his own people. And for, the, for Egypt and for all the world of the nations, There was only one proper response to God's steadfast love and faithfulness displayed in the Exodus, displayed in the Passover. Only one proper response to the way that God had hung in with his own blood-bought people. And that was to worship and to praise and to extol the true God of the world who keeps covenant loyalty to his own blood-bought people. That's what this song is about. But it's about a little bit more. There's one other, yet greater Passover, that demonstrates in an even more clear fashion God's powerful commitment, his steadfast love, and his covenant loyalty to his own people. Remember, this shortest song, it's a gospel song. It's a song that's sung by Jesus and his disciples during that last Passover, right before they left the upper room to cross the Mount of Olives, right before Jesus' arrest and his beating and his death. And as the disciples took the fourth cup of celebratory wine, and as they sang these words, they were, preparing, they were prepared to see the lengths to which God will go to demonstrate his chesed, to demonstrate his steadfast love and his covenant loyalty and his faithfulness to his own people. How far will God go? Well, God will go to Gethsemane as Jesus, the son of God, sweated blood and cried out in anguish and he prayed over and over and over, let this cup pass from me. God will go to to the Sanhedrin's mock trial, and to Pilate's bema seat. And in both places, see injustice done and be convicted of crimes that he had not done. God would go to the Praetorium Guard's room to be stripped and beaten and abused and humiliated. God would carry a cross through Jerusalem streets to, to a place outside the city, to Golgotha, to the place called Skull. And God had his hands and feet nailed to that cross and he was lifted up and suspended between heaven and earth to die an excruciating death. And why did God do this? In the, from the evening of, of Monday, Thursday on through to Good Friday, why did God do all of this? Great is his steadfast love toward us. And his faithfulness endures forever. That's why. And so, the us here, great is his steadfast love toward us, my friends, it's not just Israel, it's all of God's blood bought people, the nations of the peoples who have come to trust in Jesus, the Son of God, as their Savior, to profess that his death on that cross was actually for their sins and for their salvation. And the Apostle Paul, he knew this. He actually taught this. In in Romans chapter 15, he quotes Psalm 117 verse 1 as part of of a montage of text to teach us that, in Paul's words, Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. In other words, this us, Great is his steadfast love toward us is us. It's us. Jew and Gentile, white, black, and brown, American or Armenian, Irish or Islander, Scot or Swahili, every single one of us who have who've known God's steadfast love and mercy in Jesus Christ, we, you and me, We are the ones who are called upon to praise the Lord, to extol him, and to honor him. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and his faithfulness toward us endures for always. And so so this short song, this shortest gospel song, is a song ultimately that leads us to the cross of Jesus Christ the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. And it calls on us to say together, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we do praise you this night. We praise you for great is your steadfast love toward us, and your faithfulness endures forever. We were wandering in the valley. We were lost in the shadows. We were captured by darkness. And yet you sought us. And you bought us. Through the crosswork of Jesus Christ. You gained salvation for us. And you rescued us. And so it's only right for us to praise you. And to adore you. Now Lord as we come to this table. May this table be a table of thanksgiving. May this be a true Eucharist, a a meal of thanksgiving, a place of praise. Because here we see displayed before our very eyes the steadfast love of the Lord toward us and his faithfulness which endures forever. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.